If you look in Psalm 14 this morning, as you find your place, I have been, this month I started reading a little differently in my, my morning time. I've been reading just one psalm and just staying with that psalm, trying to see what the Lord would speak to me about. And I've, I've been just really enjoying that this first couple of weeks of the month. And on Friday morning, I was here in Psalm 14, and as I read this psalm, I began to meditate on it, and there was a definite question which arose in my heart and a definite sense that this was a message not just for me on Friday morning, but to bring to you today. And if I give you the bottom line up front on this one, I'm going to ask a question that's going to seem a little strange. And I'm going to ask you to ask yourself the same question I asked myself Friday morning in my morning prayer time, and that is this. Am I practically an atheist? Now, I want you to stop and think about that question a moment. I was spending time in this psalm, and when I got done with this psalm and I was in the midst of meditating on it, I began to think to myself, am I practically an atheist? Now, I want you to think about that this morning as we look at this. Let's just read the first three verses for now. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Now we commonly understand Psalm 14 and verse 1 to be the most direct address to what we call atheism in all of the Bible. David writes here that it is, it is truly a foolish person who believes that there is no God. And I don't really think there are that many people in the world that actually believe that there's not a God. But the word fool that's used here in the Hebrew is the word Nabal. Now you may recognize that, that word, that name. Uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 25, that was the name of Abigail's husband. And you remember that David and his men had, had come to Nabal after they'd been living in the wilderness, they were refugee renegades from Saul, and they had been living in the wilderness for all this time, and they had actually provided some security for Nabal and that raiders and so forth would not come in because David's men were around and sort of provided some protection. David said, surely Nabal will feed us and resupply us. And of course, Nabal not only refuses David, but he insults David. And Abigail, Nabal's wife, hears about it and she intercedes. And, and taking David's supplies, she asks him for mercy for her husband's foolishness. And this is what she says in 1 Samuel 25 and verse 25. Let not, my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, even Nabal, for his name is, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Nabal means folly or foolishness. So we can understand the meaning of the fool, I have said in his heart there is no God, that it, it is a person who is lacking in understanding. Now you and I both know we all have to admit, if we understood the reality of God, if anybody understood the reality of God, there'd be no such thing as disbelief, would there? And there's a lot of questions that we could dive into. Why is faith even a, a, an issue? Why does God not just reveal himself from heaven? And the short answer of that is, is that God wants you to choose Him. And when you choose Him and when you will trust Him, you will see Him. You will know Him. And you will begin to know Him as He is more and more. 
but it's a person that lacks understanding. The word folly originally uh, in Old English meant someone who was weak in intellect. Now, that's a little ironic when you consider that much of the force behind atheism comes or seems to come from the world of academia and the institutions of higher learning where they're supposed to be very intelligent. And not that they aren't intelligent, but there's a difference between worldly wisdom and man's wisdom and understanding. Now, I won't say much about this here, but the answer to atheism is found in Romans chapter 1. Basically, uh, what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 is that they are ignorant of what has been made clearly evident. And Paul points out in Romans chapter 1, and particularly verse 18 through 23, that they, they have to basically be willing, they willingly reject the evidence of God in order to say that there is no God or to live like there is no God. Because all that is required is to look at what God has made. Paul points that out. Creation, creation testifies to God. The world over is filled with people who believe in God because of creation. We look at creation and we say there has to be somebody that designed and created all these things. Then to understand more clearly, one must look at what God has said. Not only do we see that God is because of creation, but we can understand more about who God is by the scriptures. We look at what God has said. But then the final piece is to see the very reality of God in the transformed lives of believers, the church. But therein lies the rub, as they say. When the people in the world see believers, are they witnessing transformed and transforming lives which reveal the reality and glory of God? That's the question, isn't it? So, so to bring it more at home, when the world sees us and they see how we live, when they see the life that I how I conduct myself day in and day out, the people that I'm around, do they see somebody who is being transformed into the likeness of Jesus? Because I can promise you, creation's doing its job. And I can assure you, the Word of God will not fail. It's doing its job. But the question is, what about believers? What about the church? What about Christians in our day? Now, I heard this past week that there has been an incredible rise in the number of people in our country who say that they have no religious affiliation. And that caught my attention because I had been looking at this psalm either that morning or the morning before when I heard this. Uh, Newsweek put out an article in December of, of 2021. The title of it was, Americans who identify with no religion now account for 29% of the population. Now I'm going to have to quantify that a little bit because... That's a big number, but you might not know how big that number really is. Pew Research Center released the results of a new survey regarding religion in America. According to the findings, nuns, now that refers to those Americans who identify as having no religious affiliation. The nuns now make up 29% of U.S. adults, an uptick from 23% in 2016 and 19% in 2011, indicating that some Americans are beginning to lose interest in their faiths. Now what's really interesting about this is that in the mid-1990s, the number of U.S. adults who identified as no religious affiliation was only 7%. That's still a lot. But 7%, and in the course of 20 Five years, 
Now, you've got to think about what I'm saying. In 25 years, we have tripled that number in this country. Now, you can take that one of two ways. You can say, well, you know what? We've got to double down. We've got to work harder. The church has got to be stronger. We've got to be salt. We've got to be light. We've got to win the White House. We've got to change the laws. We've got to do something. Or you can look at that and say that in the history of the world, there has never been such a rapid departing from faith ever chronicled or known except might it have been in the days of Noah. And what did Jesus say? As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days when the Son of Man comes. Now, what I want you to do is think about the reality of what I have just shared with you. And you have to interpret that in one of two ways. You have to say either, oh my, we're failing, or we have to say, oh my, Jesus is coming. It's never been like it is right now. Now, these numbers, on the one hand, they represent a large number of millennials and Gen Zers who have said, you know, we are tired of vain religion and rules and regulations. They promise us this abundant life stuff, but it seems more like stale bread. And, and we, we just don't want that anymore. The way you interpret that is the stale bread is not working. We're losing people by the multitudes because we're living in the 1930s. Now, is it all right if I just say that? Now, many of them are leaving the religious affiliations to find something truly spiritual. You have to remember that Paul said this in, in 1 Timothy. He said that, remember, that in the last day perilous times shall come. And he said one of the marks of those last days that they will have a form of godliness but will deny the power thereof. What is the power of God? The gospel. So a form of godliness. There will be a spirituality. There will be an interest in spiritual things, but they will not have an interest in the gospel. So it's a mark of the end of the age. And yes, I want to help that problem where I can. I would like to stop that losing of young adults and, and youth. I don't want that to happen. And thank the Lord for the young adults and the youth that we have in this church. And, that, and this church has been a church that has kept many of the young people. Some of you grew up in this church. You're still here today. So thank the Lord for the good things that have been done, the right things that have been done. But by and large across the board, we're talking the church seems to be failing in some way. I'll tell you, that when they go out from here, Jesus is exactly what they are looking for, but the, unfortunately they're not finding him in the established churches. Now, on the other hand, in terms of what we like to call signs of the times, and, and this mass exodus also reminds me of Paul's words of warning concerning the day of the Lord and what he called the great apostasy that would precede the day of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 3 tell us this. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of the Lord or the day of Christ is at hand. He said, I don't want you to be disturbed or, or think this because someone tells you that Jesus has already come and, and even if you get a letter and somebody claims that I told them, don't, don't believe that. Don't let that bother you. He said, I'm going to tell you something that's got to happen first. 
Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Paul said before Jesus comes back, there will be a falling away. The word is apostasia. It is the great apostasy of the end. Now what does the great apostasy of the end look like? Does it look like people marching the streets with, uh, you know, banners that say, you know, God is dead and Satan is king or Jesus is a lie? I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know that Paul had that in mind. When you put Scripture with Scripture, what you see is something that seems to be the revelation that there will, in the last, the last hours of the age, there will be multitudes of people who at one time claim to be believers, but they begin to turn away from God and just leave it all behind. It'll be a great falling away. You can't fall away from something that you were never a part of. And so there will be many in that time, Paul says, they're just going to walk away from faith. They're going to walk away from God. They're going to walk away from, I believe you'll see it not only in our Christian faith, I believe you'll see it in other religions. People are just going to walk away. But certainly Paul says in the, in, within the church you will see this departure. And then we think of the words of Jesus read earlier in Luke chapter 17 that Brother Corey read. Remember verse 25 through 30, Jesus said, he describes what the atmosphere and the attitude of the age will be like when he comes again. And he says it'll be as the days of Noah. It'll be as the days of Lot. And he says that people were just marrying and giving in marriage. They were buying. They were selling. They were building. That commerce was great. Things were business was booming. You know, a lot of people have the idea that in the end, when the, when the apocalypse comes, that we're all going to be living in bomb shelters hunkered down just trying to survive. People are out, you know, digging holes so they can hide away for when the end comes. That's not what Jesus described. Jesus describes that life will be, when he comes again, it's going to look like, man, everything is great. Life is good. We've got it made. Everybody's got a chicken in their pot, you know, and a car in their garage and, and a 401K, and we're doing great. And then he's coming. You see, the atmosphere and the attitude of the world at that time, Jesus is describing, is that it'll essentially be practically atheist. Practically atheist. The world will sort of operate with a no-God-required attitude. Now, put those things together and you understand why we are now, in the course of 25 years, going from only 7% of the population saying that they have a religious affiliation to now a third of our population. And if 29% of adults are saying that, well, if you factor in all the children that are involved in that, that's a big number of people. Now, before we move from Luke, just a few pages past chapter 17, Jesus speaks to us in chapter 21, and there are some verses here that I have referenced many times over the last couple of years, and I need to read them to you this morning because I, I want to bring us to the point of this message. In, in Luke 21, when Jesus is describing how it will be at the end, he's giving the disciples the answer to their questions. Uh, how will we know it's the end? When will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the world? Well, Jesus tells them, among other things, some very important things they should do about their own soul. He says in verse 19, In your patience possess ye your souls. 
Why? Because this will be a time when men's hearts will be failing them for fear. People are going to worry. People are going to be anxious. Now, I think we're in that phase right now. There's a lot of worry. There's a lot of anxiety. Somewhere along the way, people are going to find that euphoria. And that will usher in that man of sin, that son of perdition, who will be the answer to everybody's problems, right? You see this unfolding. Verse 28. And when these things begin to come to pass, what are we to do? Look up and lift up your head, for your redemption draweth nigh. You know, it wouldn't be a bad thing for us to sort of get heavy on the side of singing songs about Jesus coming again. You know? That would, that would be real good. It would help us practice verse 28. And then in verse 34, he says, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. I've spoken of that before, but when Jesus says, Be aware, lest your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, that surfeiting is a word which we would say today, hungover. And he's describing there what we might call a heart hangover. A heart that's hung over, that's heavy, that's weighed down, that's just miserable feeling. Now, how does that happen? We get heart hangover from paying too much attention to what the world is saying and too little attention to what God is up to. And what happens, the reason we get heart hangover and we get overcome with surfeiting and then we turn to drunkenness and the cares of this life is because we have listened and watched and fed our soul too much on the garbage that is out there today. Now, you don't, I don't talk about it much, so you won't mind if I hit it one more time, but if you're living off of what call, is called news today, if you're living on what's called social media today, you're filling your heart with a lot of stuff that's going to cause you one day to wake up with heart hangover if you don't have it already. And you get so, you get so distraught, and you get so angry, and you get so tense, and you get so mad, and you just eventually get to where you just say, I'm done, I give up on all of it. You say, well, that never happened to me. Jesus warned us to watch ourselves. And the last one is verse 36. He says, watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So what is my point in all that? What is Jesus emphasizing here? That, that in a world of great apostasy, a world of no God required, we are to be doubling down in our life with Him. We are to get more serious and more faithful and more centered on God and Jesus than ever before. That's what we're to be doing. That's what Jesus wants us to do right now. Now, atheism, a-a-a-theos, a ah, meaning no, theos being God, it could also be understood perhaps in a more practical way as godlessness. And what helps me understand that is Psalm 10, verse 4. It says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. That's godlessness. That's godlessness. Are we atheists? Are we agnostic? Of course, we're sitting here today. We would say, no, I'm not that preacher. I'm a believer. Well, atheism is the claim, of course, as we've said, by someone that they do not believe in God. Agnosticism is a person who says they are just not convinced one way or the other. Like, there may be a God, but there's not really proof, and, and I'm okay with that. There may not be a God, and you can't really prove that, but I'm okay with that. That's, that's sort of what an agnostic is. And they kind of leave their options open, sort of non-committal, hoping things work out for the best. 
And there's four different categories that they, they'll put these together in if you read about it. There's Gnostic theism. Now, when I said atheism, no God, agnostic, ah, Gnostic knowledge, no knowledge. You can't know, in other words. So there's four different groups that, that, that you could possibly fall in, right? There's the Gnostic theist. That's someone who believes in God and they know without a doubt God is true. Okay? Now that's where we would probably consider ourselves to be this morning. And then there's the agnostic theist, the one who believes in God but doesn't know for sure that it's true. Then there's the Gnostic atheist, the one who disbelieves in God and knows for a fact that there is no God. And then there's the agnostic atheist, the one who disbelieves in God but isn't really sure that it's true, okay? Now, those are the four classic categories that, that people get grouped in. But here's the question I have. What do we call the person who says they believe in God 100% but... Outside of that statement and perhaps a little church attendance, they live as if God is not real in their day-to-day -day life. What do we call that person? What about those of us who believe in God 100% and, and, we, and we want to know God more and we want to love Him and we want to be faithful to Him, but in truth there are times or maybe there are certain aspects of our life or certain parts of our heart that we have not fully surrendered to God. And so we're living, at least at times, as what we might call practically atheist. You see what I'm saying? And as I studied on all this and thought on all this, the question rose in my heart, am I practically an atheist? Now let me interpret that. Am I living my life every day, hour by hour, as if God is a real part of who I am and what I'm doing? Or am I living like God is a part of my life on Sunday and maybe a few minutes in the morning and maybe when I pray over my meal? But other than that, I'm kind of doing things on my own. That's what we would call a practical atheist. Now we may say, yes, yes, only a fool doesn't believe in God and that's what the scripture says, but the operative word this morning is the word believe. The question that I want to draw down on this morning, and more to the point is, do you believe? Do I believe? Or are we practically atheist? Now what does it mean to believe in God? If belief is simply an acknowledgement that something is true, then heaven will be densely populated with Satan and all the demons. Think about that. If belief is simply the agreement that something is true or that it's real, then heaven will be the home eternally of Satan and all the demons. Why? Because as James tells us in James chapter 2 and verse 19, Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. That's a good thing. But the devils also believe and tremble. So, so we know there's, there's something more then to this thing of belief. Belief then must be more than an agreement that God exists and that Jesus is who He said He is. It's good to believe that, but it must be more than that that God is looking for. And so James goes on and he gives us verse 20. He says, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? The kind of belief God is looking for is the kind which compels us to act on what we say we believe. As one philosopher said, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. All right? That's what God's looking for. 
Now, I know most Christians would be offended to be thought of as being atheists, but an honest look at Psalm 14 may cause us to think about this in a way that could be helpful. Because as I look at Psalm 14, what I see is atheism sort of described in three very practical, very human things. And they're very translatable. We, have to, we tend to want to point our fingers and say, you know, the atheists, the people that don't believe in God. I, but God didn't, God didn't say, hey, you know that crowd over there that says they don't believe in me? I'm talking to them. There's a challenge here in Psalm 14 for our own soul to see how are we actually living. Are we living as people who truly believe in God? Now, there are three very practical and very human things that I see in this, this psalm that we can then evaluate our lives by. What are they? Well, there, there are, number one, there are the deeds that people do. Verse 1 says, says they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Now, the way that I would apply that is they do what they want, and they want based on how they feel. That, that's, that's what guides their life. In the general population today, this is how they live. They do what they want, and they want something based on how they feel. If, if it makes me feel good, I want that. If that makes me feel bad, I don't want that. If that makes me feel comfortable, I'll go for it. If it makes me uncomfortable, I don't want to be a part of that. So they operate on what they want, and they want based on how they feel. The opposite of this is to live in obedience to God and to do what God wants. And we know what God wants because we have given our hearts over to meditating and thinking about the will of God. Now, do you see the vast difference between those two ways of living? And excluding the crowd that isn't in church this morning that says there is no God, we're not talking about them. We're talking about the people that are sitting on church pews all over the land today. How many of them live their lives doing what they want because they want it based on how they feel? And how many of them are living their lives based on what God wants because they have given their hearts over to meditating on and thinking about the will of God? Two different ways to live. And Jesus said in John 8, 31, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And he says in John 14, 15, If ye love me, keep my commandments. And so, at the very foundation of what it means to be a believer, at the very base of what it means to be a believer as one who wants to obey God and live like somebody who truly believes we must be readers of the word we must know the commandments of Jesus if we're to keep them and that means that we must saturate our lives with the words of Jesus that our lives will be just sort of covered in words written in red you know that we're in them daily that we're living in them, that we're being uh, made new by those words because we are staying with them all day long. The deeds matter. Secondly, their desires will show. Not only the deeds they do, but the desires that they are after. He says in verse 2, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that didn't understand and seek God. In his conclusion, they're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. By the way, 
shepherd here. That's bad news. The whole world had gone into sin and wretchedness. But aren't you glad that Jesus did come the first time? You see, that's the answer to that. If it were not for Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God, we'd all still be in that condition right there without hope. But back to the point, the desires. Does anyone seek God? This was the question God had as he looked on the world. And of course, in Noah's day, there were eight people who got in the ark. In Lot's day, there were four people that escaped, I guess three, that ultimately escaped out of Sodom. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we know that today God is still looking and He is still discerning what our hearts are set on. We can't fool God in this. We can't cover up before God in this. We must learn to live our lives in the reality that God knows every detail, not only of what we did, but why we did it. But when we are learning to become more the person who lives inside the will of God and the commandments of God, led by the Spirit of God, that's less intimidating. We learn to be less intimidated and more welcoming of the knowledge that God knows. Sometimes there's things I don't want you to know, but I'm glad God knows them, right? We cannot fool God. So what God wants is for us to intentionally set our hearts on desiring Him. In John chapter 4, when Jesus meets the woman at the well and they talk about worship and and who God is and which one had it right, Jesus says, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. You know God is the great seeker. I've heard a lot. I don't know. I hear terminology and stuff. You, You need to understand something about me. I may use words and phrases sometimes, that you've heard somebody use in a movement or a group and it's, it's used badly, trust me, I'm probably not using it that way, right? I don't know a lot about all that stuff. So if I ever say something that sounds like, man, the preachers got tangled up in some group, you better come ask me about it. I probably didn't. Somebody asked me the other day if I believe in progressive salvation. I said, amen, I sure do. And then I found out that that's a bad movement. That's a hyper-Calvinist thing. I didn't even know it was. I just believe God is saving me and he's, he's redeeming me and he's making me better and he's fixing me as I go along and one day I'm going to be perfect when I see Jesus. That sounds like progress, you know, but I, I'll say the wrong thing and people will think I'm in some group, some movement. Anyway, I've heard a lot about the seeker movement. And, and I don't know a whole lot, but I hear that terminology. Let me tell you who the greatest seeker of all time is. The greatest seeker of all is God himself. And he has been seeking to save that which is lost from the beginning. Now, I'm glad for the seeker. But, deep, but we're told by Paul, Colossians 3, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. So we have their deeds, we have their desires, but then thirdly, he calls out their dependence. That is... What are they trusting in, or who are they trusting in to make their life work? Verse 4 says, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread? And look at that last part, and call not upon the Lord. You've got to read that with that kind of inflection. What he's saying there is, is that they, they've got a plan, they've got a system, they're doing it their way, but the last thing they're ever going to do is look to me. And so that is a mark of a- atheism. And again, we're talking about people in 
the church now. Are we living our lives more like atheism or more like true belief? You see, the godless or the practical atheist would not even think of lifting their heart to God in prayer and reliance on His grace and His mercy and His goodness. They're trusting in other things. Now, this is fundamentally what worldliness is. And I think that it's good for us to repeat this over and over and over again because we hear the term worldliness and we think of people that were out in the bar last night or people that were at the honky-tonk. or you know we, That's how we think of worldliness, but that is not... Worldliness, that could be a, product, a byproduct of worldliness. But worldliness is when we give ourselves over to a system of supports and amusements and practices which are designed to sustain life with no need for reliance upon God. That's what worldliness is. To be worldly, in a most basic illustration is when I get in a financial tight spot, rather than stopping what I'm doing and finding a place to park with God and call on God and ask for help in this crisis, I run to the bank and I take out another mortgage on my home or I apply for another credit card and I slap the plastic down and I go into debt because the world has a system that will help me. I don't need God. I just need another card. I don't need God. I just need another loan. I don't need God, I just need some money, right? In the world, that's worldliness. And when you live like that long enough, yeah, sure, all that other stuff that the world's doing becomes kind of second nature. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, be not conformed to this world. The word conformed, sismatizio. And if you see how it's spelled, S-Y-S-C-H-E-M-A, you'd get that we understand that's the system, the, the schematics, the system of the world. What is the word for world? The eon, this age. Don't be conformed to the system of this age, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Live in the Word of God and be led by the Spirit of God and don't give yourself to the worldly system. I promise you this, child of God, I promise you, God will never leave you alone. He will never forsake you in your trouble. He will never fail you. Sung the song, worry ends where faith begins and don't run to the world to help you. You stop what you're doing and you wait on God and He will deliver you. He will. He will not fail you. It's God, your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He'll pay your bill. Now, I just need to go ahead and insert in there, if you got in financial trouble because of foolishness, there might be some penalties to pay. I've had to do that before. <laughs> but I've never gone without what I needed. And I tell you, I could never blame God for one financial problem or, or, or any other problem in my life. You know what I like? Let me, let me let something settle on your heart. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them who are called, to them who, are, who love God. All things. That thing right now in your life that is just the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And, and God didn't do it. And it's a mess. And it hurts, and it's scary, and, and you don't see how it's any good. God will turn that to your good. You are loved unfailingly by God. I want to say this to you. You are God's favorite child. Well, what about him? He is too. What about her? Hey, he loves us all as if we were the only one. Isn't that great? 
That means I don't have to come to God and hope Brother Andy got all of God's favor today because, man, I sure could use some. No, 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 no. We can trust him. We can trust him. So let me just say this as we come toward the close, but don't stop listening now. The answer to this dependence on worldliness is not complete and utter surrender to the world, but it's complete and utter surrender to God as our source and supply. It is, in other words, to live Psalm 23, not just to say it or recite it. And you have perhaps heard the old saying, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks, right? The question before us today is when we walk out that door in a little while, when literally we sit down in the seat of our car, we walk into a restaurant or into our, our dining room and we sit at the table, and all that will happen today, the rest of the day, the question before us is, in practical terms, are we going to be living a godless life? Like Psalm 10, 4. The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Or could we honestly describe our lives this way? Psalm 16, verse 8 and 9. Listen to it. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. You see, Psalm 16 lets us know that our position will determine our condition in terms of where and how our soul is doing. A life of godliness, that is the opposite of godlessness, a life of godliness is one in which I am always positioning and repositioning myself so that God is always before me. I am always looking at Him both to focus on Him and that is to behold Him, and to follow Him. That is to obey Him. Now, which of those describes your life? God is not in all His thoughts. God is not in all her thoughts. Or, I have set the Lord always before me. I am thinking about God all the time. I am constantly positioning myself, repositioning myself, so that I am beholding God and I am obeying God. Your life will be described by one of those two passages. And when I am not focused in following, I am apt to lose, at least in my present state, the condition of the soul that Psalm 16 describes, which is one of confidence and gratitude and gladness and contentment and discernment and resilience and hopefulness and sincerity. And so what must I do in order to guard my heart from practical atheism, from a condition of living in a godless way? What I must do, what is required to guard my heart and to hold my position as someone who is fixed on Jesus, beholding my shepherd, enduring as seeing him who is invisible? What can I do? I want to just tell you these, and I give the invitation. If you want to position your life in a way to constantly behold him and obey him, what must you do to guard your heart and hold that position? You need to work to eliminate the distractions. Work to eliminate the distractions in your life. 
Ask yourself what pulls my heart and my mind away from God. It does not matter how innocent it may seem. David said, I have set the Lord always before me. Eliminate the distractions. Work at that. Work at that. You haven't got rid of all of them yet. I know, I haven't either. We've got to work at it. And secondly, we need to plan to consecrate our movements. Now, I use the word plan because we have to be intentional about it. I need to plan to consecrate all the movements of my day. Let me describe it this way. Do you do anything in a given day in which you do not need the Lord's help if your intention is to do all things for His glory? And of course the answer to that question is no. I don't get up out of bed in the morning. If I intend to do it for God's glory, I don't get up out of bed in the morning without needing God's help to do so. But do I plan to consecrate that movement of getting out of bed in the morning all the way to the end of the day? And if not, then we should want to learn the habit of praying over everything and inviting Jesus into everything. Plan to consecrate your movements. And the third thing is we must arrange to stimulate our surroundings. Remember, how do I keep my heart focused on God? How do I not live like a practical atheist? How do I focus on God, behold Him, and obey Him? I need to stimulate my surroundings in a way that helps me to keep thinking about God. The opposite of godless is godly, and to be godly is to be full of God, and to be full of God is to live a life which could never be described as practically atheist. So I close with this. I presented to the staff a book to read prior to going to our retreat this year. The, the title of the book is Resilient by John Eldridge. And one of my favorite passages in the book, I, I think I've shared it with you before, but it says this. The mistake most folks are making in this rough hour is trying to figure out how to fit a little more of God into their crowded lives. We need to do the opposite. Start with God. Center your life on Him and work outward from there. Plan to become the most converted person your friends and family know. Call this the new monasticism. Rearranging our days to be centered around life in God.